Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel discussion from the IO360 2020 Summit on the topic of innovations and novel approaches in IO imaging and assessing responses. Dr. Anetta Schmidt of Takeda led the discussion and was joined by Dr. Gregory Goldmacher of Merck, Dr. Peter Eggleton of Merck KGAA, Dr. Ron Korn of Imaging Endpoints, and Dr. Matthew Silva of Invicro. So thank you very much for joining me on the panel. I sort of feel I'm the diversity factor in this panel. <laughs> but, it's a <laughs> but it's a pleasure to have you all here. We've just finished a, um, an amazing series of presentations, and we wanted to use the residual time we have to... Um, to start a discussion on what really matters here and where do we want to go. Um, I would like the uh, audience to participate as well, but I will take the, the first round of, of comments from, from, from the panel. Um, and please state your name again um, as, you, as you first answer, because I haven't had a chance to introduce everybody properly yet. Um, so really, my question to the panelists, and maybe I start with you, Matt, um, what is the key challenge you face in your running of IO trials um, that involve imaging, if you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, hello. On? Great. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Matt Silva. I'm the CEO of Invicro. We're an imaging service provider for pharmaceutical companies. I would say that the, the talks today really highlighted the the challenges that we face. It's the, the fact that the uh, response criteria uh, aren't clear, they're evolving, they're important, but knowing when to apply them and how to apply them is, is, is certainly a challenge. Um, the other thing that was highlighted was the fact that there are limits in uh, molecular tools that are specifically linked to drug mechanism of action. So CD8 is certainly an important factor uh, in IO. Uh, we work certainly in that space and beyond, uh, but the development of imaging tools that are specific to mechanism of action that can be used to make decisions uh, are also lacking in development, uh, but still lacking. Perfect. Do you want to build on that, Greg? Sure. Um, hi, uh, Greg Goldmacher, uh, uh, Merck. Uh, MSD. Uh, so as far as challenges in applying these criteria, indeed, the criteria are evolving. They're complicated. So we, you, you, know, you saw a list earlier, and they're continuing to evolve. So, and as, as mechanisms evolve, criteria have to evolve with them. So for example, um, there's a number of uh, trials now of uh, intratumoral immunotherapies, right? So your oncolytic viruses, sting, rigi, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that actually becomes even more difficult to assess response because uh, people want to know, well, you know, how, how did the lesions that were injected respond differently from those that were not? So, you know, in addition to all those criteria you saw earlier, we're about to publish another set of criteria for, you know, IT resist for intratumoral therapies that dissect those things out. So criteria evolve. The fact that they're complex means that in the, you know, at an imaging service provider, there's a small elite team of readers who knows how to do this stuff and who, you know, you can measure the performance and keep track of it and, and, over, and have oversight of that. At sites, who knows who's doing the reads? 
and who knows how well they understand the criteria. And so there, I mean, here, you know, the technologies that were discussed, and there are some technologies out there for, for trying to sort of ride herd on investigators and keep them from making too many mistakes, but monitoring is really key. You know, so something, you know, the, the monitoring that, that sponsors have to do at trials is really key. Um, and then another real challenge, I think, is that you know, despite all of the criteria, criteria only to really tell a part of the story. They they elide a lot of complexity. So, for example, the idea that in resist, you know, you you measure what tumor, you know, target lesions. What you're doing is essentially is kind of averaging effects across all lesions, right? You're sampling and then you're averaging your sample, but it's very very likely that in most patients, not all tumors are the same. So some tumors are hot and some tumors are not, even within one patient, right? So the things that look like they're progressing and that, or everything's responding, one lesion's growing, if you just average those together, it looks like stable disease, right? It's really not. So in addition to the kind of kinetic modeling that's being done on aggregate tumor size, probably what's gonna have to happen down the line is, is looking at the contributions of individual lesions, which adds, of course, another layer of complexity. So I've probably taken way too much time, but those are some of the challenges. No, perfect. I think they set up uh, Peter perfectly, right? Yeah, as usually sets me up perfectly. <laughs> Peter Eggleton from another company that also uses the name Merck on another continent. <laughs> My biggest problem is very simple. It's that we've got a whole set of criteria that don't work very well anymore. They used to work extremely well. As therapies and the way we approach cancer have changed, so these criteria no longer work very well. Why else do we say, if the tumor response status doesn't match the patient's condition, carry on treating? The answer is very simple. It's because these criteria aren't working anymore. We need to replace them. We still go back to Zubrod's characterization of the 1950s of complete response, partial response, stable disease, and progressive disease. I don't think even those classifications really reflect what we need anymore. What we need now is uh, tumour expunging, uh, tumour no longer visible, which is a less sort of thing, tumour reducing, tumour enlarging. Categorizations like this are actually more clinically meaningful to where we need to go to from now. Um, and I believe that uh, it's time to stop talking about complete responses and partial responses. I'm a firm believer in a partial response is a complete failure. Okay. Well, I couldn't agree more. We can follow up on that. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with what's being said. But, uh, but I think um, our mindset or as I, as I get, has to change because... You know, there's one thing to say you got a partial response, a stable disease, but another way is just to do, you know, use math. You know, look at a waterfall plot. Really, a 29% reduction in tumor volume or tumor size is not a response. I mean, there's three things true in life death, taxes, and tumors always grow. So if tumors are growing, that's bad. Kind of, maybe, who knows. So I think we have to kind of think about, get rid of the categorical response, and I think that's a mistake we find a lot of sponsors make, is they're like, gosh, we had no responses, only stable disease. Well, stable disease isn't bad, and it could actually be a very good marker. The other thing that I just want to uh, add to this is that when you try to integrate nuclear medicine into a clinical trial, 
um, especially when you're trying a, a new agent, can be very difficult. And the difficulty is not in the manufacturing, production, uh, but it's really in getting investigators to send patients your way because they don't think of imaging as a important part of developing drugs. So it's like you got melanoma patients and it's like, you know, can, you, can we image some of those with our fancy probes? Oh, I had to start treatment yesterday and I forgot, I'll get, you know, and suddenly it takes longer than it should when this is where the excitement should be, in my opinion. And we've got to get investigators more engaged in that. How interesting. I'm going to see whether there's a question in the audience before I move to further questions. Yeah, go ahead. Please come to the microphone. <laughs> Actually, sort of several uh, questions maybe combined into one, but uh, where does the FDA stand on mm -hmm. IR resist and, and, you know, validation and acceptance? And, and, you know, I guess coupled with that is I think we all generally assume that pseudoprogression is because of a T-cell infiltrate. Now with the CDA imaging agents, has anyone put that together and basically shown like a really clear-cut example, pseudoprogressor plus strong CDA infiltration? Perfect question. Do, we, do you want to take I can, it? I can start, we well, ask? I can start with, with one of these, and that is the FDA position. So, yeah. you know, obviously we talk about all these things are so complicated, and we need this, and we need this, we need to model individual lesions. The bottom line is it all has to boil down to a trial endpoint from a drug developer's standpoint. It has to boil down to a, to a trial endpoint that a regulator will accept. And so far, uh, what they have said is these are all very interesting ideas, Please come back to us when you have a lot of evidence that they actually that these criteria, these you know funky novel criteria, actually meaningfully distinguish uh, clinical effect, and 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 then we'll consider we'll consider using them as anything other than just an exploratory analysis. So right now it's all exploratory. You know when iResist was developed, Pat Keegan was involved in that and has said. This is great. Come back, you know. But this is all going to have to be exploratory until further notice, basically, or until there's significant evidence. And what they consider significant evidence is not, you know, a couple of nice separated KM curves, you know, from a from even a, one large data set. They want a large body of evidence. So these things are always going to be kind of chasing, in a sense. Like we might accumulate evidence that one novel set of criteria works. Of course, by then the field's moved on. You know, people want to make decisions. But where this can be most effective is in early stage decision making, right? Looking at growth kinetics can help you differentiate a good phase one from a bad phase one candidate. Right? So that's, I think, where, you know, ultimately as you get down into a, you know, uh, uh, pivotal trials, we, we have to fall back on the traditional criteria for the, the, the primary endpoints. Um, and then I'll, I'll let somebody else take the question about uh, pseudoprogression. And I was actually just going to quickly check. I, I think what you're, what you're presenting here is very much the perspective we have. But I, just out of curiosity, do we happen to have someone from the mm. FDA here who's comfortable commenting? That would have been cool. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm actually going to say one thing. I think it's a reality today, but I also feel, and I think the two of you mentioned that too, we may need to advance. We may need to be coming more comfortable looking at innovation and uh, adjustments to the assessment. But 
Let, let me give you the microphone. Well, I just want to address the question. Are we able to see the different mechanisms of pseudoprogression? And um, I, I can't tell you all the results of phase two of the clinical trial that's going on. The second patient, I can tell you anecdotally, that was a lung cancer patient where the nodes were lighting up. The physician thought the patient was having a pseudoprogression based on their conventional site reads. And so we were seeing some increase. So we think there's some hope in those two mechanisms. But you know, distinguish the two of whether it's growing because the tumor is proliferating or because the CD8s are infiltrating uh, is yet, we've not yet answered that. But here I think this is where FDG PET and something like a CD8 agent could be good. Because tumor growth, what's the best way of detecting it? Right, that's what FDG does, basically. Sure. It looks at sure. tumor mass for the right. most part. Correct. So you might be able to come up with certain kinds of uh, indices mm -hmm. that can help. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you need to think about what is happening in the tumors, actually, it, that we're imaging. Assuming it's homogenous, say a tumor is in disease stabilization, there are a number of processes going on simultaneously. The first one is that, tumors are, that some tumor cells are continuing to proliferate. The second one is that other tumor cells are dying. The third one is that there's a T cell infiltration going on. And what you actually see is the summation of all these processes. And the fact that you say the tumor's instable, the tumor's stable, it's in stable disease, doesn't mean to say there's nothing going on. Probably what is happening is tumor growth has stopped, there is some tumor regression, and there's a parallel infiltration of T cells going on. And that's why I think you saw what we did in our study. Where you have progressive disease, the T-cell infiltration isn't great enough, the tumor proliferation is marking. When you actually see response, the uh, tumor cells dying is greater than the T-cell infiltration. It's getting the balance of these things right. Unfortunately, we cannot yet reliably image each of those processes separately. And I think that when we can, that will be very, very illuminating. Just add to that. So you're right, Peter. Um, but some of the promising early stuff, and the folks in this room might might or not be familiar with this, but works like that. You know, stuff that was published by Roger Sun and his group um, a couple of years ago, where they measured. They sh basically showed textural, roughly speaking, features that were able to measure tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Right, and used that to you know to create a signature, and used that signature at baseline to predict response and survival in an early checkpoint inhibitor trial with a hazard ratio of something like 0.58, which is a really robust effect. So there is promise that that you know e basically AI-driven analysis of routine clinical imaging could be used to differentiate them. And I, and the reason I emphasize routine clinical imaging is. You know, it's hard to get investigators to use fancy pet tracers. <laughs> it really is hard. And it's also a matter of expertise. You know, it's easy to do at Mass General or Gustave Roussy or what have you, but not so easy to do that at East Lansing Community Hospital. Right? So, so that whereas something that can be just deployed on a server anywhere and just, you know, you ship the data over and it sends you a response, you know, an answer back immediately uh, would be a lot more, e you know, easier to, to implement or deploy. I'll, I'll maybe add one more point. I think one thing that we're, we're, we're not including in this is that there's histopathology. So there are direct ways of assessing tumor microenvironment, although, and easy for an engineer to say, uh, it's obviously invasive, and so it may be difficult to get these serial assessments, but uh, that would be the most... Uh, 
a direct way of confirming that the imaging agents are in fact uh, measuring the appropriate response. Mm. If I can add to, to what you said, Greg, um, I, here's where I, I, I slightly disagree. <laughs> um, I think that although radiomics is great and I love it and I think the work here is, is elegant, um, the amount of variability across the country in how CT scans are obtained, the, the, the contrast phase, the, how well your scanners are tuned, whether this MRI or CT, and the complexity of the immune system, I think it's, it's, real, it's going to be very difficult without standardization and some sort of Kiba-like process to really make this uh, ready for you know, prime time. And in, in many ways, that's why I like you know, the pet tracers all of them because it's a lot easier to develop a pet tracer and give it to, at least in America, the 30% of oncologists who own their own pet scanners <laughs> to do a very simple test like that. So I, I, I don't disagree with you necessarily, but I think the, the promise of radiomics is great, but we've got to do better work in standardizing how we do that. Hmm. I can answer I, that very I, briefly. So I, I agree with that, um, that, it, that it's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of effort. Um, and that the pet tracers are a lot closer to the biology. So I think that those can be a really useful tool to get. But, but even so, you know, it, they're, still, they're always going to be hard to use. So they can be used to help us develop the, you know, the, the, the downstream stuff like the radiomics. Actually, I'm going to build on that, and I think it's uh, continuing on on the conversations we've all had before. Um, there may be a different place for the different modalities in your drug development, and there could be an opportunity to model the change in the different cells, the kill rate versus the growth rate, using information from nuclear imaging and applying that in later phase using, using the more standard imaging. I think we have a real opportunity to pick and, and tailor our approach, and there is indeed really promising data coming out, and I think it will help you with your, with your uh, pathology as well, right? Really exciting, though. I, if there's not another question, I wanted to go back to uh, the question of the uh, assessments because all of you seem to, to, to sort of get quite excited on that topic. So I think what I hear is that, um, that you felt that the, the standard uh, CRPR, SDPD, may not be appropriate and we may need to rethink um, how we label a, a particular patient's status. In my um, initial thinking, I, I think we, we may need to uh, adjust that to where you're making that assessment. Are you at the clinical side uh, and you're just trying to decide is this uh, treatment still beneficial versus the drug developer where we're trying to make a decision, do we want to take this drug any further? But um, do we want to speak a little bit more about that? Because I think that's very impactful, too, and, and would take some, some uh, collaboration to, to come to agreements. Any comments from anyone? I have a comment. Yes, go oh, ahead. You can count on me to always have a comment. <laughs> so if you talk to the folks who wrote Resist, they're very clear. This isn't meant for clinical decision-making. Those categories, and, and, and then when you add to it the sort of, let's say, say, uneven understanding and application of any criteria, including resist at sites, that sort of makes it even more difficult to use that as a clinical. So I don't, I don't think those response criteria should really be, I mean, they, the point, what's the point of response criteria? 
the point of response, the response criteria is to reduce variability, right? Because no, it, otherwise, if everybody interprets things any old which way, that hides true changes in tumor burden over time, right? So when we, met, when we do stuff that squeezes out variability, when we turn everything into a cookie cutter process, which is what resist is kind of meant to be, what you do is you eliminate your ability to resolve actual clinical nuances that, that can actually drive treatment decisions. So I think that, I mean, for that reason, because, you know, it's not hard for anybody reasonably clever, for any reasonably clever person, anybody in this room, to come up with a scenario where you apply the rules of resist and you get an answer that is way at odds with your clinical intuition. And we know that. We know that as drug developers, we accept that that's a cost we pay for reducing the noise so that we can aggregate data across, you know, 100 sites around the world. I see nods. Did you want to comment, either of oh. you? Oh, no. Oh, uh, well, I, I absolutely uh, agree uh, with that. Um, I, I think that, that uh, if, you, if you not only um, talk about resist, but you look at some of these other criteria like Lugano, which we are all through the Pentad initiative trying to understand as end users how to use Lugano, it was really key opinion leaders who kind of sat down and said, well, I think this should be. And then suddenly that becomes the Bible of what must be. And then you end up in this area where there's differences between how you do it from site to site, from lab to lab. And even uh, Amit did a great job in outlining the problems of Lugano and Lyric. Uh, the issue is how to solve those problems. And there is even a lot of disagreement. Should you be using PET uh, SUVs in Lugano? What's your visual score? How do you measure the spleen? How do you carry a response forward? I, I mean, all these things that you think aren't very controversial, you get a bunch of us in the room. And it's like the devil's oh in the details. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I would say that if it's confusing for us, it's confusing for sites too. Yeah, we're using one set of criteria to do, decide two totally different things. Number one thing is uh, the regulatory decision, which in, in that situation is tumor shrinkage 29%, you lose. Tumor shrinkage uh, 30%, you win a billion dollars. Okay. Right? On the other hand, we want to use the same criteria to guide individual patient decisions, or we need something else to guide individual patient decisions. Now, I'm wondering whether we should be having two different sets of criteria, one for regulatory acceptance and one for individual patient decisions, because the individual patient decisions need to take in actually much more depth of data, and the regulatory decision needs much more breadth of data. So if I had one message to give to the FDA, I would say... Why use the same set of criteria for both things? I think that's a very interesting point, especially if we think that uh, with the current approach of just uh, acquiring a CT, we don't always understand what the status of the patient is. And we may reach out to do some molecular imaging to better understand is this patient still benefiting. Maybe one day we will be using radiomics to better understand that. But the question will still be, um, how do we want to label it, and does that need to be the same or different? And I think you're arguing for different. But Peter, have you not found, though, that the agency is now more willing to let patients, uh, have, let patients be treated based on an immune criteria, response criteria, but what they need for their statistics is 
resist. So what they want the for their statistics is resist. Yeah. The problem is that um, if you take the immune criteria and the regular criteria, they're superimposable. It's only when you look at the outliers there's the difference. And that's why big groups like the EORTC and NCI Canada have done huge studies and shown no difference. Because the assumption is always that it's in the uh, body of the data, and it's not. The differences are in the detail in the, in the small groups, and there is currently no way of drawing the, the agency's attention to that. Very interesting. So, you know, in our trials and in our interactions with the agencies, what we found is that it's not that they... What they care about is that if you're going to treat past progression, that there is essentially some process that protects the interests of the patient so people aren't just kind of continuing on with futile therapy forever. I think that's the main thing. How you interpret post post-progression responses and things like that, I think that's of less interest right now because there just isn't enough body of data. But, but mainly what they want to see is that you have a described process for if treating past progression and, mm. the dis and some, some level of decision-making in treating past progression. Absolutely. We have a 10% tumor burden rule, 10% increase in tumor burden over confirmed PD. Mm -hmm. um, is where we draw the line and say that is the point at which you have to. Um, FDA wanted a line. That seemed okay. a sensible line to draw. You'll still miss the odd patient who has a really slow curve round, right. but that's the price you pay. Right, and, and of course in iResist it's even simpler, right? It's after you've progressed, it's five millimeters of aggregate size. That's it. It's basically anything beyond like pure noise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please go ahead. You had a question. So, hi, I'm Talia Buran from Oncolis Biopharma. And I just want to raise one point that I think is important for all of us drug developers. You know, those eye resists were really developed based on what they've seen in melanoma. But the thing is that we work with IO in many indications, and we truly don't see pseudoprogression in every single disease. So if you look at uh, indications such as head and neck cancer, you know, we don't see pseudoprogression. So I'm just wanting to know your, your thoughts because as a drug developer, we don't adapt automatically, I resist, into every trial that we do. We think about the indication and do you feel the same way that, you know, you should not automatically just decide because you're doing IO, then you should put I resist. What, what are your thoughts about it? Well, the answer, my first answer to that is very simple. You certainly don't see pseudoprogression in every tumour type. That's absolutely certain. You absolutely do see return to disease stabilisation in every tumour type. And we're looking, I think the definition of pseudoprogression needs to be revamped. That's one of the things I really do. Right, so there's kind of a couple of ways of thinking about pseudoprogression. One is essentially, did you have basically some noise-based, did you cross PD threshold based on noise and then things regress? I mean, that's something that happens across tumor types. That's just a, a phenomenon of measurement. The biological phenomenon of pseudoprogression probably is quite different across tumor types. Exactly. The problem is, 
it, I don't think people, well, I've, I've just, I just had to review a paper um, where somebody tried to actually go ahead and systematically do it through the literature and try to evaluate the, the rates of pseudoprogression across different tumor types. Um, so that kind of work, I think, is just beginning to be done. I mean, data wasn't even collected in a systematic way with systematic definitions of pseudoprogression, you know, until really, you know, what it's been a decade, really, right? And so there, there has hasn't been enough accumulation of data. I think as that data is accumulated and analyzed, and we're, you know, certainly we internally, you know, we've got a huge program we've, with, that we run with Pembro that we've tried, that now we're going back and looking. We've been too busy, you know, filing to really, you know, sink effort into looking at all that data. But as we do, we will, and, and by the way, we are also not incorporating iResist in every single trial. It's, it's, it is being, you know, more selective now. Okay, I, thank I, you very much. I, but I, I think it, uh, just if I can comment further that one thing that uh, you briefly mentioned on, which is a real issue, which is the technical variation from scanner to scanner, from patient to patient. So the coffee table tests have been done on CT. If you take somebody, put them on a table, image them, walk them around the table and image them again, the change in size just by doing that can be as high as 40%. Wow. So just by doing that, you already get into a pseudoprogression state. So that's why I think a lot of us want to make sure that at least there is some sort of, uh, of standardization of how images are acquired across the sites. And so really, it, it is an important consideration. Okay, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. So I, I know we're coming up to the end of our session, so I want to give everybody the opportunity, any pearls of wisdom, any last comments you want to make? I, I wanted to make one comment, and it was addressed, I think Laurent earlier uh, made a comment on one of his slides about, you know, imaging also has a lot of value in monitoring uh, biodistribution of compounds. As we see in this conference and in others, there's a proliferation of really interesting compounds, uh, bispecifics, tri-specifics, um, and we don't often know uh, where these agents go. Uh, and, and we as a business have really helped pharmaceutical companies understand that biodistribution as it might pertain to safety, uh, as it might pertain to efficacy, as it pertains to dosing and combinations. And biodistribution is a very important factor that is, is, is often underappreciated. We just assume that these compounds, because they are targeting uh, something that's expressed on the cancer, that they will eventually get there and they will do something of interest. Um, final word of wisdom, sure. Uh, for early decision making, do high science and you know rig and, and cutting edge technology. For regulatory and late development, do standardization and monitoring. <laughs> Basically, those are the things that matter. All right, thank you. Go ahead. Same as I always tell to people: when in doubt, trust your patient, not not your pictures. All right, thank you. That's an interesting one. <laughs> Um, I, I think that the excitement of the future, if we can all agree, would be to come up with some sort of alliance or collaborative effort. There's so much data around there. I know the NIH and others are trying to put it, you know, uh, uh, databases. But really to advance the field of some of these things we're talking about, it would be great to have public access or have pharmaceutical companies agree to things that don't matter anymore to them to put it in some sort of public space so that we can look at some of these new technologies. I actually really like that. I appreciated that in Axel Hoes' welcome this morning, saying this is also an opportunity for all of us to collaborate, and maybe there are opportunities for us. I, I would very much appreciate it. 
And in addition, I'm thanking everybody who hung out here with us. It's been a pleasure to have you all attend our session. Um, it's a pleasure to have all you here and present. Um, I hope we'll have more great work to do together. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO360 2020 conference. The next IO360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.